Amen. I do want to start with a prayer here in a second, but before I do that, it's always um, great to have the choirs here, but I always kind of feel bad because y'all are coming in. I'm just going to slide this. That, oh boy, there goes the page. Okay. Um, y'all are coming in at the end of a series that we've been doing and every message kind of builds on itself. And so I, I feel like maybe you're going to be lost and not really know what's going on. So I, I want you to know that for the last um, two months, we've been in this series called Ordinary, which has really changed me dramatically, um, and I didn't anticipate that. Uh, the whole concept that we're here in Greentown, Indiana, and the movers and the shakers and the people that change the world are out there. And you have kids that go to high school and they can't wait to get out of here because they're going to go and change the world out there. And our entire mindset in that regard is built around what the world tells us, that you have to do big things. And the world defines what big things are in order to impact the world. And so we've been looking at how that's a lie from the pit of hell uh, and that the changes that God intends is for his glory and he has his people where he wants them to be to impact the world around them and doing big things in the eyes of heaven is usually completely different than what the world sees. And so that's where we've been. And I do not in any way, shape, or form mean to um, puff someone up uh, because we're all insignificant specks of dust apart from God breathing life into all of us. And that's what's amazing. As a Christian, you understand no human being, a president or a homeless man, in the world's eyes, one has far more value. You feel far more impressed when you're in the presence of one than you do the other. Some you try to avoid. But in the eyes of heaven, we're specks of dust, the dust of the earth, and we'll return to dust. And what gives us value is not the things that we do. It's that the God of eternity breathed life into us. And that's true for the homeless guy, the Down syndrome baby. It's true for the person that finds the cure to cancer. It's true for the next president of the United States. We all have equal value in the eyes of God. And so therefore, this idea of ordinary, we're all ordinary. We're insignificant specks of dust apart from the divine breath of life that we all have. And since we have that, we're of equal value. So in no way do I intend to puff someone up. But I want to use as an example what I'm talking about. Carol, please don't feel awkward when I say that. Did she leave? She's gone? She's at, oh no, she's there. I figured she was walking out. Anyway, okay, so Carol Evenson is an incredibly gifted musician, director, all of these things. She's been at Eastern for a while and has had a number of students, myself included, because, you know, I'm younger than she is, and, okay, but I would guess, and I don't know this to be true, but I would guess at a young age, Carol Evenson had big dreams. And even early on in her career at Eastern, a lot of people were saying, this woman is insanely talented and she's going to end up at Kokomo, maybe a big school in Indianapolis, and, and maybe she'll go to Broadway and she'll be directing all of these things. And I don't know if that was ever a dream that she had, but let's say that it was. Go with me on this. What would she have done? She would have used her time at Eastern as a stepping stone to get to the next level. And then she would have used those kids at Kokomo as a stepping stone to get to the next level. And the whole time she's doing that is she's attempting to puff herself up and live the dream that the world tells her. She is trampling the very people that God had brought into her path to impact for the kingdom. Now you just saw up on this stage a lot of kids. And every year it's a different group of kids. And many of those kids, and I know this because I work with them, many of those kids, they don't know anything about Jesus 
They've never seen Jesus in their life. Their home life is, is such that they don't get that on a daily basis. And Satan thinks that he's winning a battle with them. But what was he not expecting? He was not expecting one of God's agents of sabotage to undermine everything he's trying to do by impacting the world around her. This ordinary life in Greentown, Indiana has had an eternal impact on so many people through the years. That's what I'm talking about. That's what this series is about. That's you and that's me. God has positioned us uniquely in, in the places where we are. And we get these visions that I need to be something big. No. God has you where he needs you. Be obedient and be faithful. And you're changing the world. That's what it's about. All right, let's pray and let's leave. Anyway. Um, <laughs> So I just said that, but that's the point of what this series is. So now you're caught up and all the people who attend here regularly are ticked off because I just did that in like two minutes and they've sat through seven messages to hear all of that. Anyway, all right, so let's say, let's say a prayer. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your servants, those who understand that the value of life comes in what you build into us, your divine spark, that this life is not about us, that it's about you, and we have the opportunity to impact the world, not for our name, but for yours. Father, I thank you for the people that are here this morning, and I know there's a lot of guests, and their congregations are missing them this morning. And I pray that um, wherever your word is being proclaimed and all of the churches that are represented here, Father, I thank you for the brotherhood of all believers, that we are at home with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what I pray for those who are visiting with us, that they would feel at home, that your word would be open, that they would be encouraged to continue their walk with you. And I pray for their churches this morning, that your word would be treated fairly and, and would be proclaimed truthfully. And that you would be, be, be uh, beginning a mighty work in this community, not for our sake, but for yours. Father, that is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said. All right, so now we can start the sermon. That's inciting, isn't it? Okay, I, want you to, I wanted to start off with a juxtaposition. That's two things beside e each other. What you just saw, 16, 17, 18-year-olds who are up here, and whether or not they intend to, they are leading and prompting in worship. They are leading adults and youth and elderly people, where? To the throne of God. That's what you just saw. Whether they intended to or not, that's what they did, okay? I want you to juxtapose that with what else we saw this week, okay? Uh, that scene in Kansas City, supposed to be this big celebration of a Super Bowl victory, and uh, 16, 17, 18-year-old youths decide to interrupt it with gunfire and take away the life of a mother and, and a wife, you see these stories as a Christian, and it cannot help but discourage you. And the truth is that the world seems so much fuller of those kinds of stories. You see those stories on the news every day. You don't see things like what you saw this morning every day. And it can lead us as Christians to get really depressed and really discouraged. It, it really helps me understand. I talked about my grandpa. Grandpa was a, two, a, a World War II vet, and... Um, he lived out his days uh, with his eyesight fading, and we, we'd gotten him a big, um, big flat-screen TV, and he sat in front of it all day long watching Fox News, and he was always upset. He was always upset. That's how he lived the, the end of his days, and I hated that. Every conversation that I had with him towards the end, it always went back to the same thing. And maybe you've heard this before from, from those in that generation, but he would say, is this what I fought for? He's watching the news. Is this what I saw two ships torpedoed out from under me in the waters of the Pacific for, for our country and our culture to go down this path? 
for this to be the way the, the, that our country became. And I understand why, why he's bitter. It's very easy for us as Christians to know how the world should be and then see how the world is and become very discouraged. You feel that joy when you see what you just saw. You feel the hope that comes from that. And then you walk out the door and it gets completely ripped away from you. I always tried to come up with a, uh, uh, with a, with a visual representation of the way that Christians feel in our culture. How is it that we can have all of this joy, but then as soon as we walk out of the doors, the world just sucks it away? I finally found it. Okay, A few years ago, my family was in Florida, and my daughter Addie, who is now 14, was finally old enough to ride Splash Mountain in the Magic Kingdom. Okay, she'd, she'd seen it before, so she knew that there was a big drop, but she didn't really understand. So we're going through the ride, and I'm sitting beside her, and she's singing, having a great time. And then we get up to the final drop, and she's all giddy because this has been so fun. Well, I know what's coming. So I get my cell phone out, and I reverse the camera, and I just film her going over the edge. And this video clip is the perfect representation I'm, now, I'm serious. Stay with me. I waited until all of her friends were here. Anyway, this is the perfect representation. Yeah, watch her and laugh at her. But this is the perfect representation of the way that we as believers interact with the world. We come out of reading the scriptures or hearing something like this, and then the world hits us. Uh, you see what happens. Let's go ahead and roll this, guys, if we can. All right, hold on. We're going to run this back in slow motion just so we can get the full effect of it. One more time, guys. See, this is us. Everything is good. We're happy. We just saw the choir sing. We're reading the word of God. We're joyful. We're pleased with life. We're full of hope. It's, and now the news hits. And now the world hits. Yeah. So that's us. It's a perfect visual representation. You're fine, Ed. It's really fine. It is so easy, so easy to feel overwhelmed, to feel impotent in dealing with the conflicts and the difficulties of the world. I hear what Jesus says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. I say, how in the world am I supposed to do that, Jesus? Have you watched the news? Have you seen what's happening? Did you see what happened in Kansas City? There's a different school shooting that happens every other week. How can my heart not be discouraged with what's going on? I want to do something about it. Last week, uh, Linda came up to me, and she was saying, you mentioned William Wilberforce. Have you ever seen the movie Amazing Grace? Of course I've seen the movie Amazing Who hasn't seen? If you haven't seen the movie Amazing Grace, there's something wrong with you. Go get the movie Amazing Grace and watch the story of William Wilberforce, somebody who understood God has positioned me in Parliament to go out and to do his work. I'm not going to try to climb the ladder. I'm going to reach down below me to the, to the slaves and try to lift them up to the position where they should be, the least of these. That movie, Amazing Grace, inspires me. I watch it, and I want to walk out the door, and I want to change the world. And then I realize something. When I walk out the door, I'm not in Congress. Nobody's going to elect me to anything. I'm not a president. I'm not sitting on the Supreme Court. I wield no power. I'm a teacher at Eastern High School, and for heaven's sake, I preach at a small country church just outside of Jerome, Indiana. I, I, how in the world am I supposed to do what William Wilberforce did? And I feel that. I feel that pressure. I can't do it. That feeds that desire 
that we talked about that first week, to dream big. You remember the obnoxious video? Because all of heaven is dreaming big for you. No, it's not. All of heaven is dreaming big for the kingdom of God. And we are to be the agents that build that kingdom of God. And so when I get this mentality that I have to do something to change the world and all of the problems in it, it leads to this discontent and this frustration that I have that I'm not doing enough, that I'm wasting my life. Really, this is what I was supposed to do? Teach history at Eastern and preach at a small country church? God, you've given me these gifts and this is as far as I'm supposed to go? Maybe I'm not doing everything I should be doing. I hope this series has taught us differently. I've hoped, I hope the word of God revealed in this series has taught us differently. Remember what Jesus... Because here's the thing. Whoop, whoop, don't read ahead. Here's the thing. When I take that approach... And I feel like I need to go out and I need to do all of this change and I need to accomplish all these big things. Do you know what I'm taking on to my shoulders? I'm taking on a burden and a weight that was never intended for me. That's what Jesus meant when he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Not the world's yoke that demands that you accomplish all these things, that demands that you all grow up and achieve all of these amazing things and make a name for yourselves. No, that's the world's yoke. Leave that behind. Take my yoke upon you. I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. And look at this line. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The burden I feel when I see all the problems of the world and feel like I somehow need to do something about it and I need to dream big and I need to accomplish all of this, that is not a light or an easy burden for me to carry. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson. Yeah, maybe. Okay, all right, so The Patriot is, is set in the American Revolution. And at the beginning, for those of you that haven't seen it, I will now describe the movie and it will be like you're watching it because I'm so good at this. But anyway, so at the beginning of the movie, Mel Gibson's oldest son is taken captive by the British. And his middle son has been killed by the British. Okay, this is during the Revolution. And he's got two little boys that are like younger than my son. So they're like seven and eight years old. And so Mel Gibson decides he's going to run into the burning house and grab his muskets, his, his rifles, and he's going to take his young boys and they're going to go up to the top of a ravine where the British are going to be marching through and they're going to set free the oldest son. Now the, the boys, seven and eight, they're scared to death. They've shot rabbits before, but they've never shot at people before. So he gets them up there and he positions them where he wants them and he hands them the guns and he says, boys, steady, remember what I've taught you. Does anybody know the next line? Aim small, miss small. Yeah, you don't know the word of God, but you know Mel Gibson movies. That's really, really nice. Yeah, so aim small, miss small. And then he scurries off into the woods and he does his Mel Gibson thing, which is awesome. But anyway, anyway, aim small, miss small. I didn't know what that meant. You know what aim small, miss small means? This is exactly what I'm going to suggest to you and suggest to me. When you aim at a target like a British soldier and you miss your target, the bullet's going to go off into the woods. You're going to let them know where you are. It's going to be a disaster. But if you aim for something small on that target, like a gold button on a red coat, and you miss that target, you're still likely to hit the soldier somewhere. Bring in your targets. Rein in your targets. I'm going to suggest to you that the secret of ordinary, the secret of what God is teaching us is that. Stop thinking that you're responsible for changing the entire world. You're not. You're responsible for being obedient to God where he has placed you. You bring that target in, and you're going to come a lot closer to hitting the mark. Think about Noah. You remember Noah, the guy with the boat? Yes? You with me? The big boat, Noah, that guy. Do you know what Noah was doing? It, talk, it took him 100 years to build that boat. 100 years. Do you know what Noah was doing for those 100 years that, that he and his sons are building the boat? Because Scripture reveals a little bit of that. 
This is in 2 Peter. If he, God, did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness. So what's Noah doing for 100 years? He's preaching righteousness to the people of his generation. By the way, that's the generation that God said they're so corrupt and evil, I'm just wiping it all out. He's preaching righteousness. You see this also in Hebrews. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in our faith. Okay, so l listen. He is preaching righteousness. He is condemning sin to the people of his generation. And by the way, it's not just scripture that tells us what Noah's doing. Extra biblical, outer biblical sources, other works of antiquity and history. They tell us the same thing. This is the Sibylline Oracles. I'm sure you all have a copy if you want to get that out now. I will read from book one, lines 155 to 161. Single among all men, most just and true, was the most faithful Noah, full of care for noblest works. And to him God himself from heaven thus spoke, Noah, be of good cheer in thyself and to all people, preach repentance so that they may all be saved. But if with, with shameless soul they heed me not, the whole race I will utterly destroy. So this is an extra biblical source. It's not canon. It's not in the scriptures. But it's telling us what Noah did. He preached righteousness to the people of his generation. I need you to answer me a question. This is very important. In a hundred years of preaching righteousness to the people of his generation and condemning sin, how many converts did Noah get in a hundred years? Zero. Do you know how frustrating that would be to preach your entire life for a hundred years and not get a single convert? You don't think by year 95, 96, you'd be getting a little frustrated that you got to go out? Because remember, these people aren't just saying, Noah, you make some good points. We're going to take some notes. We're going to go back, think about it. And we'll come back tomorrow. No, they are mocking him, ceaselessly mocking him for a hundred years. And he is preaching righteousness. This is the point. What did Noah realize? This is so important. Don't miss this. Here's what Noah realized. He was not going to be judged based on how many people he converted and got to get on the boat. He was not going to be judged based on how other people responded to what he was proclaiming. He wasn't going to be judged based on how many people made fun of him or didn't. No one knew he would be judged on one thing. Was he obedient where God had placed him to what God had called him? And that's what I'm going to suggest to us. That's what I mean by aim small, miss small. Hopefully we've learned this as well. You and I are not responsible for changing the world. We are responsible for being obedient to God where he has called us and where he has placed us. And I will tell you, that is going to, if you embrace that, it will change everything about how you see your life. If you feel like your life is a disappointment, it's because you are looking through the eyes of the world and not through the eyes of Noah, who understood what his responsibility was. I want you to listen to this and imagine this actually occurring and happening. Wait, sell the furniture? As in all the furniture? What exactly are we going to sit on? How will we live? Her eyes shot daggers at her husband. Had he gone insane? He had been his normal, sensible, hard-working self when he had left for work that morning. Now he was raving like a lunatic about selling everything they had in order to afford a small piece of property for sale on the outskirts of town. Who cares about this old furniture, he said. We need the money from it. We need the money from the house, the car. Hopefully that'll be enough. She dropped her fork. She couldn't help it. He didn't notice, and he just kept going with his excitement building. You don't understand. I think we could get a few thousand out of our wedding rings and your jewelry as well. Stop. She was proud how firm and controlled her voice sounded. You are scaring the children. Look at them. 
I don't know if you're trying to make a joke, but if so, you have crossed a line, and this isn't funny at all. He slowed his pace, walked up to her, and put his arm on her shoulder. Calmly, he said, it's not a joke. None of this is a joke. His face told her what he was saying was true. Again, I'm wanting you to imagine this happening in your home. She knew him, and he was serious about all of this, and she shuddered what it meant for her marriage and her family. I know you think this is crazy. I do, he said, but you're wrong about this property I found. It may not look like anything, but I found something there. Do you remember the movie, The Goonies, where they found this lost treasure in the unlikeliest of places? Something caught my eye when I was driving by on the way home from work. I walked out there, and it was showing through the dirt and the rock. What was, she asked. Gold, diamonds, riches like we've never imagined. I found it all. I kept digging and there was more and more. Somehow until that moment she hadn't noticed the dirt under his fingernails and on his pants. I couldn't believe it. It must have been there for like 200 years. It's like someone buried it there, never told anyone and planned to come back but never was able to. So I buried it even deeper so that no one else would see it like I did. The pace of his words began building again. You know we can never get alone with our credit. But if we scrape together enough from what we have to buy that field, it will all be ours, all of it. Then you'll have new furniture, new jewelry, new cars, a new house, everything we could ever want or need. She looked to her kids and then back to her husband. So I want you to imagine that scene happening. And imagine two people all of a sudden starting to sell everything they have to buy what seems like a worthless piece of property. It seems crazy. It seems radical. And I look at those words crazy and radical in the eyes of the world, and that tells me that this shouldn't surprise us. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. In God's eyes, it isn't crazy. When you find something that is of great value, the other stuff that you have no longer matters. We spend our lives, you and I, trying to climb these ladders of success. We want to accomplish all these things and gain all of these things. And Jesus said, no, follow me down the ladder, getting rid of those things, and go down in humility, serve others, and you will reap a greater treasure than what you think is up there at the top. People want Corvettes. Do you know how many people spend their whole lives trying to attain a certain socioeconomic status so they can have that right there? What eventually happens to that right there? You know what happens to that right there. It rusts and it decays. And you bark at your kids when they walk by and the chain on their bag happens to scratch along the side of it. That's what happens. These things don't last. It's the same principle. People chase titles. You spend your whole life pursuing that next title at work, and what's going to happen? You're going to get sick, you're going to lose the job, or you're going to die. And the moment you're gone, someone else is going to fill that exact position and have that very title. That's what you were chasing after? Was that it? What is your whole life is going after something that the moment you're no longer breathing, someone else immediately has that and nobody remembers you anymore. As wild as it seems, when she's gone, a few years after Carol's gone, maybe they'll name the auditorium after her. I'm kind of hoping they'll name it after me. I don't know. <laughs> I had quite a career on the stage. Um, <laughs> stop. I'll probably get a bathroom at Easter named after me. But anyway, uh, the hex stalls is what it's going to be. But anyway, it's gonna be, you're going to be forgotten. Nobody, the, the next generation, they're not going to remember. Maybe the name, but they're not going to remember that. They'll, they'll claim that title as soon as it's gone. That's what Jesus meant when he said this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. 
That's where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. And yet so many of us in this room spend our lives trying to store up treasures on earth. And they won't last. There's no way that we can take them with us. But store up, he said, treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. That's why it does not matter to do big things in the eyes of the world. You're going to leave Greentown. You're going to go be a marketing executive in New York City. Okay, but don't believe that somehow that is better than something else that is somewhere else that someone else is doing. Because what brings value is not the big things in the eyes of the world. Because somebody else will be that marketing executive when you're gone. What matters is what you have done for the kingdom of God because that's the only thing that lasts. This is why it doesn't matter to climb or to be seen on the world's ladders of success because those ladders are not going to last. They're phantoms. They're illusory. They won't last. This is what we said last week that Wilberforce realized. Yeah, he could, he could have used his position in parliament to try to become the next prime minister. But as soon as he's gone, a political move here or there, he no longer has that position. Wilberforce stored up treasures in heaven. I will use this position for the glory of God. I will reach below me on the ladder to the people, the slaves that can do absolutely nothing for me. And in fact, reaching down to them is going to hurt my career. But I'm going to do that because that is treasure in heaven. And what was his reward? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Is that not the treasure that you and I should be seeking? He took his cues from better people than the celebrities and the tycoons that too many of us are drawn to. Who does he take his cues from? How about this in Hebrews? This is what Hebrews says about Moses. Chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. I'll find it in a second. Here it is. But by faith, Moses, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to his reward. Are you looking forward to your reward or are you enticed by the treasures of America? The, the American dream. How about, how about Paul? Paul had a lot of stuff. He was a Pharisee. He was well-respected. He had money, wealth, prestige. And look at what he says in verses 17 and 18. But even, this is after he found Jesus, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. He's awaiting a death sentence for following Jesus. And he's rejoicing, saying this was a lot more, it was worth it a lot more than what I had before. People don't normally say, hey, I'm suffering, I'm about to be murdered, will you come and celebrate with me? That is not a normal thing for a person to say. In fact, the only reason a person says that is if they know that suffering has a greater purpose. That's the only reason they would say that. You only say that if you know the reward that is coming from what you are doing is greater than anything that you've lost. Which is exactly what Paul said. He said, I consider all of that stuff garbage that I may attain the faith that I have in Jesus Christ. And notice what else it gains you. Just flip a page into Philippians 4 and look at verses 6 and 7. Listen to these words. Don't be anxious about anything. In everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now look down at verse 12. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him 
who gives me strength. Are you seeing these words? I, I want you to catch these words. Contentment, satisfaction, joy, peace, purpose, meaning. You're seeing these words that he's talking about, right? Are those the words, are they not the words that our big dreams promise to give us? And they never do. People spend their whole lives wanting this by trying to climb the ladders of success and they never get them. And Paul is telling us exactly where you do get them. In a life of humility, an ordinary life served, serving the kingdom of God. We think the answers are above us on that ladder. And we spend our whole lives trying to climb and elevate ourselves to get it. But clawing and stepping on each other has constantly been leading us away from it. I use Carol as an example. My early days, don't laugh at me. I wanted to be the president of the United States. I know it's stupid. I'm from Greentown. I was born in Enid, Oklahoma. I'm not going to get elected president. I get shot within a week. You can say all of that stuff. I get that. But that was my dream, and I wanted that to happen. And I really believed that it could happen. I felt like this was my calling and what I wanted. Okay, so let's say that I would have pursued that. Why did I want it? I wanted it for myself. I wanted people to remember me. I wanted them to, to know me. All of that. Um, if I would have done that... Every step of the way, I would have been stepping on the very people and passing over the very people that God had brought into my path. And Jesus would have been sitting in heaven saying, what are you doing? And I said, no, I'm trying to become president and then I will serve you, Jesus. No, you're not. The people, the people that you're to be serving, those students, those obnoxious students that you have every year, you're missing it. That's where you can have an impact. You're not going to have an impact up there in the White House. Nobody's going to like you if you get up there. All right? you, you have your ability to do that right here. That's the point. What might my dreams have cost me? That's what I'm saying. What might your dreams be costing you in service to the kingdom of God? I don't know your conversion story. Some people have these profound conversion stories. I do not. I was raised in the church. I was eight years old and decided to become a Christian. And it was just kind of, a, I got baptized and that, that was it. And it's just been that way. I'm going to tell you, I've always kind of been jealous of the people that have these amazing conversion stories. And maybe God saw that and he's rewarded me because I feel like this series has been a complete conversion for me. I, that, that thing that I was talking about, the man and the property, I feel like that guy and the property, that I found the treasure in the field and it's totally changed my perspective. And things in my own life, personal life, have been swirling and going and, and, and it's all come to a head and this series was not, was not just randomly timed. I didn't start studying this and preaching this. I, I feel like hopefully you got something, but this has dramatically changed me. Realizing how worthless all of that stuff is. And all of a sudden my pursuit has completely changed directions. Think about how that man's neighbors, when he started selling all of his stuff, how they looked at him. Uh, yeah, that's the way the world is going to look at us. But who wins heaven's treasures? That's what I keep going back to. I want that. That's what I want. And who wins heaven's treasures? Those who are dedicated to small acts of love and sacrifice that gain them nothing in the eyes of the world. Those who see the least of these on the ladder as more precious and valuable than whatever is offered by that top rung. That's hit me hard. Reaching down to, to those people that can do nothing for me. Sitting with that person in the cafeteria and making them laugh who is always sitting by themselves. Reaching out to somebody who's having a bad day. That's what I'm talking about. Those, the least of these, there's more value there than trying to climb this ladder. Those who prefer living close to God rather than living in such a way that everybody treats them as a God. I want to live in, in, in connection and communion with God. Those who see that being a, this is so big. 
being a small character who's helping in writing God's eternal epic, being a small character in God's story is so much better than being the lead character in whatever story you're trying to write for yourself. That right there is a secret. And it's one of the things that I understand the idealism of youth, but I just want to shake the kids that I have in class, sometimes for more than one reason, but I want to shake them and say, get this, because I didn't for the longest time. And I look at decades that I lost trying to chase something, and I was missing it. Being a part of God's eternal epic, telling his story, is so much more valuable than trying to write your own. Those who know this, they know that defining and chasing your own dreams is slavery. It's not freedom. You are going to be a slave to those things that the world says that you have to try to gain. Jesus turned everything on its head by freely giving in himself all of those things that you and I futilely try to accomplish for ourselves. He showed me something, and I really want you to get this. True freedom is not found in what America says it's found in. It's not found in independence and autonomy and being your own self. No, true freedom is found in dependence dependence on him. That's where you will find freedom. It's exactly what he said. These are his words. Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins and pursuing worldly things is sinful, building up treasures on earth. Don't look at those people. They're not mad. They're just getting ready for the song. You stay focused right here because I'm driving to the climax of the message, all right? Stay with me. If you're pursuing those things of the world, then you are a slave to that sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. And look at this line. This is the one that should change us. If the son sets you free, if you become dependent upon the son for your worth and your value, then, then you are free indeed. Free for, from what? Free for what? This is it. Pay attention. You are free from the fear that you are nothing but an insignificant speck of dust. You no longer have to worry about that. You're free from the guilt and the shame of sin that has held you down because it is washed away in the grace of God. You are free from the pressure of trying to write your own story and create your own purpose and define your own legacy. What a burden that is for so many of us, and you can be free of all of it. You are free to live above the opinions of others and the measuring system that the world has for us, that you don't measure up to what was expected of you. You are free to accept your significance and value that is based entirely on the unearned love of your creator. Why does your life have value? Because God loves you. He is the author of all things. And if the author of all things says you have value, who can tell you any differently? You are free to risk your reputation and your comfort and your security for the sake of a story that is so much bigger than you are. You're free to descend that ladder of success to lift up others who can do absolutely nothing to help you. You are free to enjoy the life that you have right now without this ridiculous burden and the need to try to perfect that story. You're free to stare down pain and hurt. And how about this? Aging, weakness, because you know that none of those things, none of them can destroy your purpose or your reward. Do you know what freedom there is in that? For too much of my life, and this is just an admission to all of you, I've ignored that freedom. In pursuit of what the world has, has dangled in front of me, I've ignored that freedom. And maybe you have too. I don't know. But if you have, I want you to change as well. I have desperately lived a life of worldly ambition, and it's done nothing but invite disappointment. Because God's writing my story. 
And things aren't happening exactly like I would have played them out. And I can get really discouraged and frustrated by that. But I'm done with it. I'm done with letting the world define what I, stri what I strive for and what I strive to be in my life. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm choosing to be, listen, an ordinary speck of dust who is loved and treasured by an extraordinary God. That's where my worth is. And as far as my ambition, the things I want to accomplish, I choose to listen to him when he says what? Where we began this entire series. Make it your ambition to live a quiet, obedient life to the God of the universe. Father God, I thank you for your truth. I thank you that it sets us apart from the world. I thank you that it tells a different story. Father, forgive me for the times that I've chased after the things of this world. But God, I know that I'm not alone. I know that the, the pressures from the outside world to be something, to do something, to accomplish big things, it attracts our attention and we get so confused to think that we have to do these things in order to make an impact. Father, I pray that we would be listening to your word over the lies that the devil tells us. I pray that we would be listening to you when you say, live an obedient, faithful life. Live like Noah. Live like Moses. Follow me. And that will bring your life meaning and purpose. Father, it's my prayer that every single person in this room, that your spirit would speak to them, that it would move in their hearts, and that it would change their lives the way that you have changed mine over the course of the last several weeks. I want the treasure in the field. I don't want the treasures of this world. And I pray I'm not alone. Father, set us free in your son Jesus, in whose name we pray all of these things. And everyone said... If you have a decision to make this morning, we never let a service go by without offering it. If you want to be baptized into Christianity, if you've got questions, would you come this morning as we stand and as we sing?